0: Okay, everybody, ready? Ready? Lights, camera, Christmas.
1: Uh, well, my parents say that uh I can't have a dog.
0: This is Perequa, age 11.
1: So I wanted, like, another animal that, like, is, like, fuzzy and it, like, walks around. You know, I'm not really a pet sort of person. I think she knew she couldn't get a dog, basically.
0: This is Linda, her mom. Linda's a reporter here at WBEC, the station that our program comes from.
1: So a guinea pig was, I think, something she felt she could actually ask for. You know, this is second place, I guess. It's still fuzzy and walks around.
0: Linda's husband is Mexican, and the kids lived in Mexico when they were smaller, so they don't write to Santa to ask for what they want. The Mexican tradition at Christmas is to write to the three kings.
1: So she wrote this uh, this letter to the three kings, and... um, do you want me to read it?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Could you read it?
1: All right. It says, Queridos um, Reyes Magos, espero que estén muy bien. She says, like, Dear Three Kings, I hope you're doing very well. I hope you're well.
0: I thought that was a nice touch.
1: That That is a nice touch. Este año yeah. estaba pensando pedir un uh, conejillo de India. She says, This year I was thinking of asking for a guinea pig. And then she writes, she has like an arrow. She's like, it's like an afterthought. She wrote a real one. De verdad. Then she goes on and asks for some other things. But what she really wanted, I mean, she has this whole list of things, but honestly, I don't ever remember her talking about anything else except the guinea pig.
0: So... Comes a big morning. This was two years ago. Pareko was just nine. The three kings did in fact bring her a guinea pig, and of course she was thrilled. She named it Luna.
1: The guinea pig was, like, in her arms, and it was running around her bed, and she was just, like, in love. Well, that lasted about an hour before, you know, I just noticed she was scratching her forearms a lot. And she said that they are like, hives, I was, like, allergic to my guinea pig. She was completely scared that I would give the guinea pig away immediately. And I think her one goal was to, like, keep the guinea pig. So she definitely did not complain about the hives.
0: They were big red blotches, the size of silver dollars. Perequa, however, would not be deterred.
1: Like, she still held it. She tried for a while. I was like, maybe if you cover yourself up. So... You know, what she started doing was she would put on this full face mask that she usually used, like, on the coldest days in Chicago.
0: It was black. All you could see were her eyes. Linda showed me a photo of the full getup. You can see it on her website.
1: She basically looks like a Zapatista rebel. She's got a long-sleeved <laughs> shirt. She's got her winter gloves on. And in the winter gloves is, like, the little guinea pig peeking out from her, her hands.
0: Meanwhile, paper towels stick out several inches from the gloves.
1: So that there's absolutely no gap between her long-sleeved shirt and the gloves.
0: She looks like like a young terrorist.
1: (laughs) With a cute guinea pig.
0: With a cute guinea pig. (laughs) It looks like she's taken the guinea pig hostage or something. (laughs) Pereco is devoted to Luna, still lets it run around her room, make sure it's fed. In third grade, she had a photo of Luna that she pasted onto a little hand-drawn cardboard frame with a little cardboard leg that she would prop up on her desk at the beginning of every school day facing her.
1: But it is, it just feels a little weird because she can't pick it up or hold it or even really pet it. So it's kind of like all the things, all the reasons you'd want a guinea pig She can't have those.
0: All a parent wants to do this time of year is make a nice Christmas for their kids. Linda does not even like pets, isn't crazy about having animals in the house. But the Three Kings brought a guinea pig, just like they brought her son something that she and her husband told him that they would never buy him themselves, a video game system, a PlayStation 3.
1: The Three Kings is, uh, they do test. They have tested me. They test parents, I think.
0: And not just parents. Linda asked Perequa on tape, did the three kings know she was allergic when they brought her that gift? Perequa told her she had never even considered the question.
1: But aren't they, like, supposed to be sabios? Like, wise men? Like, if they did know that you were going to be allergic to Luna, why do you think they still brought her for you?
2: Well, they would probably also
1: know that I would love her... <laughs> Even if I did have allergies.
0: And the three wise men made the right call. Today, in our radio program, in these last few frantic preparatory days before the holiday, we have stories of parents and others trying to make the holiday incredible for the people that they love, going to great and ridiculous lengths involving live animals, a deer, a sled, ancient reindeer bones, which lead only sometimes to the most magical Christmases. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. Stay with us. one, Christmas in 3D. We all learn at some point that our parents make mistakes, and that can even, and I know this will be a shock, make them when they are trying their hardest at Christmas. Maya Grants tells the story. A quick warning for people listening with young children. This is a story about one family's Santa Claus traditions, which may not be the same as yours. Here's Maya.
3: My friend Colin Mutchler is 36, and to this day he talks about his Christmases as a kid. That's because his parents were determined to make the magic of Christmas come alive for their three kids, Colin, Adam, and Erica, but they went further than any parents I know. They wanted it to be real, really real. This wasn't an airbrushed ho 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 Christmas, but a darker, grittier one, like that one year when Colin was seven, and his dad sent him to the garage for some firewood
4: and I heard some bells, and it kind of freaked me out, and so I like ran inside and I was like, "Oh my God, you guys, like I swear I heard some bells." and my or my dad was like no way really or you know and so i went we went back slowly outside and and basically we found this older man
3: Colin's younger brother Adam was there too
4: this
5: man had fallen in the backyard and slipped on the ice i was so young that it was like who is this crazy man in our backyard and i sort of are you okay are you okay and they brought him
4: inside he was wearing a very old like run down weathered jacket um, he said he had, like, windburn. And, you know,
5: could you dim the lights? I've got snow blindness. You know, from the time in the North Pole, and there's a certain amount of glare that I can't deal with. So we dimmed the lights. He talked in a very soft-spoken, you know, not a, not a whisper, but where he talked quietly enough that the whole room was silent and you had to kind of lean in. And it was that sort of weird, intimate sort of, you're just like immersed in whatever he was saying. And he basically said, you know, I'm Chris Kringle.
3: Adam was four, and he says this is his earliest memory of Christmas. All the Mutchler kids have memories like this, probably because they talked about it all the time when they were little. Colin and Adam didn't think there was just one Santa Claus living at the North Pole. The Mutchler family had their own mythology, with its own logic. There wasn't just one Santa, but a network of Santas, all working together as Christmas helpers. Kris Kringle was just one of them, a working man Santa. And just like a guy on a night shift from hell, he was exhausted.
4: We kind of were like almost helping him. The dynamic was such that it was like... He was in a rough place, and we were, like, trying to help him. And so I think we talked with him for a bit and then, you know, put him on his way.
3: Visitors like Chris appeared every couple of years or so in the band of woods dividing their house in Harrington Park, New Jersey, from a nearby golf course. Never the same guy, never in exactly the same place. They'd be disheveled, bearded, and horse-voiced abandoned by their skittish and surprisingly losable reindeer, and searching for the Mutchlers, whose home address they never quite figured out. The Mutchlers also had a family elf, Jekko, who the kids never saw, but who apparently lived in the attic for a few weeks before Christmas. The kids would hear noises coming from upstairs, hammering, walking, and when Christmas was over, they'd find wood scraps in the attic from the gifts he'd made for them, proof that Jekko had been there. Both their father and grandfather grew up with Jekyll. Their grandfather especially loved to tell scary stories about how mean Jekyll could be. And so every Christmas, the family spent hours combing over the details of Jekyll and their visitors, comparing them to previous Christmases, anticipating the next. When you ask the Mutchler kids which Christmas visitor was the one who outdid the rest, there's no question. Christmas Eve, 1984. Colin was eight, Adam was five, Erica was two. The family was out taking their usual walk, and on this night they went down to the golf course. It was foggy and dark. Here's Adam.
5: And then in the distance we see this silhouette of a shadow scampering from like tree to tree, and like it's a golf course, so it's an open wide spaces. And looking like it doesn't, they don't want us to know that they're there. And my dad says, well, Let's go find out who that is. And so we start walking faster, to try to catch up with this guy. When we come upon him, he's in this, you know, very worn, dirty Santa Claus suit that's kind of a, this greenish brown tint. And he introduces himself as Klaus Hoffer. And he's one of many sort of the, the Santa Claus incarnations. And sort of, I don't know if he goes into a full explanation, but he definitely sort of explains that. I think we mentioned that, you know, Chris Kringle and it's like, Oh yeah, I know Chris.
3: Klaus had a worn sack and began pulling out presents.
5: But the presents were very odd. There was vegetables, a head of broccoli, you know, an onion. And then he also I think gave us some bones. And that sort of comes to the most important thing, is he broke out one bone in particular and he said, this is one of the bones from the you know the original Rudolph. You know, I use
4: it to call the reindeer.
3: Again, here's Colin and their sister, Erica.
4: And literally when he broke out bones and started blowing on them, we were like, oh my God, you know, this is crazy.
2: It made no noise. We couldn't hear it. But he said it was a pitch that only the reindeer could hear.
4: And when he talked about... Rudolph, it wasn't like Rudolph the red-nosed reindeer. It was like he kind of was honoring the history of Rudolph as like some, you know, reindeer that, that, that they all honored. And the fact that he had some of these bones of Rudolph and was using them to call to the reindeer just, it was, it made sense to us, you know, like it was like, that makes sense.
3: The details were perfectly calibrated, as only people who know you as well as your parents can get just right. Here's Adam.
5: And that's when it got kind of scary. He offered all of the kids and he said, I, I can only invite the kids, but do you guys want to come on the on the sleigh? Do you want to come to the North Pole with me? And we just sat there, you know, frozen. Wow. I could say yes.
4: The answer is no. You know, the truth is, like, I mean, some old man that you just met in the dark golf course on Christmas Eve actually asks me and my brother and my sister if we want to go with him somewhere that we have no idea. It, while that might be the coolest thing of all time, it might also be, like, the end of life as I know it.
3: Again, Erica, who, remember, was two at the time.
2: and I remember screaming and not wanting to go... I was just terrified.
3: Actually, that invitation to the North Pole? That never happened. At least not the way they remember it.
6: This is a recording
3: from that Christmas Eve in 1984. Erica, Adam, and Colin had just come back from meeting Klaus. On the recording, the kids seem happy and hopped up on adrenaline. They talk about Klaus, but in the entire recording, never mention any invitation to the North Pole. What you hear instead is the grandfather suggesting, how would you like it if he had asked you to the North Pole? Then their father, Glenn, jumps in. Well, look,
7: you guys could have asked and he would have taken... I had a feeling he would be willing to take somebody for a, a short trip. But
8: they were scared. That's I was, I was, I was Behold, scared too!
3: Behold, the power of suggestion. That's how it seemed like a lot of it worked. The Muchler parents making suggestions and adding details and then retelling it all, year after year. Christmas was a big topic of conversation, and the Mutchler parents encouraged their kids with the most exciting versions of what happened on those nights, to the point where the stories gained an unstoppable momentum. As the Mutchler kids got older, things, as they do, changed. Each of the kids dealt with it differently, both Colin and Erica say they knew at a certain point to not talk about Jekko and the others to people outside their closest circles. But Adam didn't get that. At all. Adam loved to tell a good story. He couldn't not tell this one. And he believed wholeheartedly in his experiences. Even as a teenager. In public school. In New Jersey. And it had consequences. When Adam was in fifth grade, he defended his stories about Klaus and Chris and the rest in front of his whole class. It got so confrontational, with Adam telling the whole group how wrong they were, that the teacher ended up calling Adam's parents, telling them it had almost started a fight and asking them to please tell Adam to stop talking about it. Adam remembers many arguments like this well into middle school. People would call him an idiot or weird, and he would insist that these events were true. He was there. It was real. You guys are crazy. Not me. The next year, 6th grade, Adam was at his grandparents' house at Christmas time when his great aunt Blanche made some off-handed comment about which uncle played what part what year back when they were kids. Adam walked himself through the logic of what she was saying, and he knew right then that his parents had lied to him.
5: Not only did they lie to me, it was, you know, 13 years old. You know, I had to deal with that as like a social thing that I had done. I had defended myself and told these stories.
3: In front of lots of people. Lots of
5: people. And to know that my parents were sort of responsible for like allowing me to perpetuate something that like made me a liar and like a laughingstock.
3: You were embarrassed. I was very embarrassed. Adam felt betrayed and was angry about it for years. One year he came home from college and accused his parents for being the reason he couldn't trust anyone enough to have a serious girlfriend. Not too different from the sorts of speeches lots of kids make to their parents at that age. Except it was about Santa. Even he admits it was pretty extreme. I so this one was... thing made you feel like you couldn't trust your parents even though they were trustworthy parents.
5: Well, it was it was the it was the for me it was the intricacy and the planning of like you spent 7 years or 10 years Perpetrating a lie that was so deep and complex, like whether it was hiring people, vintage suits, you know hunting people through through the through the golf course and through the woods, like, what are you insane? Like this is diabolical. For me, there was a big uh, breakdown in you know the way I trusted people in my life that actually like I think it carried on into my like adult life, and even to this day, I don't hundred percent trust anyone anymore.
3: Do you feel like it made you cynical?
5: A little bit. Yeah, a little bit.
3: Adam's 33 and can laugh about most of this now. He sees what was great about what his parents did at Christmas, but he won't be doing anything like it, he says, when he has his own kids. And because of the way he reacted as a teenager, these childhood Christmases are still a touchy subject in his family. When they talk about it, everybody's careful to keep things upbeat. I wondered if the parents had any regrets for how they handled it. So I went to meet the Mutchlers.
2: You know my two boys. I do.
3: (laughs) Glenn and Lori Mutchler live on a beautiful, quiet street. It's the kind of place where deer wander through the yards. A giant wreath hangs off the top of the Mutchler's beige clappered house. Christmas lights twinkle inside and outside. We sit in the living room where the mantle has been turned into an altar crowded with an assortment of spiritual icons. Buddhas, Vishnu, a ceramic bust of Jesus, and two different portraits of Jerry Garcia. I was a hippie and did the whole nine yards, Glenn told me, on the West Coast in the 70s. Though he doesn't like the word hippie, thinks it's come to connote laziness, and he's anything but. We started talking about the elaborate Christmases the Mutchlers used to have for their kids, and I asked Lori... How did you get roped into all of this? (laughs) Well, I, I, as we were talking about this, going to
2: talk. Listen to this! No, no, no! I
3: want to talk. Roped in. No, no, no! no. I don't know if you caught that, but he called me a cynic. You know, I'm not a cynic. We're just so excited about how you pulled this off. There, there,
7: there. There is no pulling off. Something happened. People had an experience, and then you have this thought called somebody pulled something
3: off. I wasn't prepared for this. Decades after these Christmases, Glenn was refusing to admit he had anything to do with creating them.
7: So, you know, the conjecture and all that stuff uh, would really uh, undermine... The magic. In fact, all the details, the, the uh, as you call the, the the mechanics, or or, or as you pulled how'd you pull it off? It happened. That's the magic, and that's the secret.
3: We went back and forth about this for more than ten minutes. Here's my producer, Robin, having a go at it. It would
2: help to know if that's just like an impossible thing for us to ask, because
3: we have some questions about how it how it works and i just i'm wondering if we could could, you could
7: make something up you could hypothesize but that's 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 you because the magic's too powerful and
3: and did they have any regrets about when their kids learned the truth I asked Glenn and Lori about the time that Adam fought with his fifth grade class about the Mutchler Christmas stories. It seemed like it would have been a perfect moment to come clean. They said after the school called them, they did talk to Adam, but they didn't tell him he was wrong. They didn't tell him the truth. If anything, they encouraged him to believe the stories were real, saying, I was there, you were there. Their only parental advice was, be more private about it, stop talking about it at school though Lori did come to worry that they should have handled it differently.
2: I, I think for me, I I did really start to question whether we should be making such a big deal about it, and I wanted to stop doing it. It de- definitely happened in my mind. I did, and and as you can tell, Glenn's a very powerful force in our family, and um, and he's a very powerful force. Yeah, he is, and I... and. Even before this interview, it's sort of like, you know, you set up the ground rules about how we were going to have the interview. They're going to ask us, and we're not going to tell, right? You know, it's like... um,
3: Both Glenn and Lori say they tried to make it right for Adam. They had no idea how betrayed he felt until later. Lori says for a while she didn't know what to do. We talked about it a lot. We talked about...
2: The magic and the wanting it to, to, to Adam, can you see, can you, ha- can you find a place where you see where it all came from, it all came from good, it didn't come from lying, it didn't come from tricking, it, we are not bad parents because we
3: did that. Finally, Lori tells me this story. It's an important one for her, and before she starts, she says she knows Glenn doesn't want her to tell it, but that's not going to stop her. One Christmas Eve, when Adam was in junior high school, Lori went to his bedroom and i
2: was giving him, him a good night kiss and hug and merry christmas and he looked me straight in the eyes and he said you got to tell me the truth your son is looking you right in the eye saying you got to tell me the truth did did were those re, did santa really visit us and in the back of my mind it was glenn's voice going you never tell you never tell the magic the magic and i sp- Espewed all this magic And it's the magic and it's the spirit And I went on and on And he would not let it down He just said stop it Don't talk about that stuff Glenn talks about that stuff You'll tell me the truth Tell me the truth And I, I don't even know what I exactly said But I did let him know That it wasn't real And and we just cried The two of us And it was really sad <laughs> because then it over the years he would he's when he did say later when he said I can't believe that that was a parenting decision that you made that you went to that extreme he just it just hurt him, and it was so weird because Colin and Erica had taken this same wonderful experience and held it as a wonderful experience, no matter what happened or what was real, they could hold it as a just a magic wonderful moment, and he somehow couldn't and it it made me really sad.
3: Len understands that something went wrong with Adam.
7: My experience is like this with with kids. You know, you do the best you can, and sometimes you do the right thing, and maybe you do the wrong thing when you thought you did the right thing. You know, there's a time when the kids are young and you experience the magic through them, and, and, and it, it, it's just so special to be around young kids and, and to be in that... Maybe you cheat a little bit, and and you sort of become, um, you know, you're you're, you're living through them.
3: Glenn had been eager from the moment we arrived at his house to take us on a tour of Christmas past. And after our interview, Glenn and Lori head out with us for a walk. We go up the street, pass through some trees, and on to the golf course. It was darker than I had imagined it would be, barely illuminated by the ambient orange of nearby streetlights. Mist clung to the rolling expanse of grass. Then Glenn does what he's clearly been itching to do all night, gives us the play-by-play from his finest hour, the night Klaus Hoffer came to visit.
7: Get away! Stay away! Who, who is it? I'm looking for the mucklers. And then the kids who say, no, the, the, the mucklers?
3: Glenn hunches down and reenacts Klaus Hoffer's disappearance into the distance.
7: You know,
3: He lopes along. He's happy. Magic is Glenn's strength. And his blind spot.
7: We're all standing there going like, oh my God. Did, did that really happen? It was like that. It was perfect. It
0: was. Maya Grant in Los Angeles. Coming up, Typecast. Typecast, do you will hear me? As a reindeer in a Christmas pageant, the tail twitching injustice of it. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's American Life, Myra Glass, each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme today's show. For the holidays, lights, camera, Christmas, stories of people trying to throw a nice Christmas for those they love. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Deer in the Footlights. So Connie grew up on this ranch outside of a little town in Utah called Woodruff, and maybe never been to Woodruff.
6: It's, let me tell you about it. You'll have to edit this now because I'm going to say it like I always say it okay you You go through town, there's a church on the right, there's an old school on the left. you get down to the crossroads, and there's a half ass store on one side <laughs> and the post yeah. office on the other side.
0: That's it, the whole town, maybe two hundred fifty people she says, maybe fewer, and the basic uh, facts of her childhood are the kinds of things that lots of little girls only read about in storybooks. During the summer, Connie and her two sisters, they would get up, they'd have some food, and they would spend the whole day, she says, on their own horses riding far and wide together. And when they were little, they got a baby deer, a baby deer of their very own, who ended up a part of Christmas at their elementary school in a way that I think probably very rarely happens with deers and elementary schools and Christmases. So the story that I want you to tell is I I want to know how a deer ended up on the stage as part of your school's Christmas pageant when you were a kid. And and I guess you should explain how you even ended up with the deer in the first place. Do you remember when you first saw the deer?
6: Oh, yeah. Yeah. We were all on our horses and there was a doe that had just had a a baby. It was, I'd say, maybe two or three days old. Well, we chased the doe off. And took the deer. Took the fawn.
0: Did you run off the the mom hoping to get the baby?
6: Oh, yeah. You did? Yeah. My, oh, yeah. And brought it home. Let me tell you what, we never done it again. Because my dad was really pissed. Just livid. He lit into us like you can't believe.
0: And, and what was his argument? Like, What was the problem with, with bringing in this deer?
6: Uh... Nature should be left to nature. Why did we want to run that deer off, that mother, when she was perfectly capable of raising this fawn and taking care of it? Why did we, what give us the right to do with it? To take mother nature's course away from them.
0: How how big is a fawn when it's that little? Like, is it the size of a big dog? Like, I'm trying to picture.
6: Yeah, it'd be about the size of a big dog. Maybe not a real big dog. And they're light. It couldn't have weighed any more than... I'm going to say 25, 35 pounds. And we put it on our horses, put it across the saddle, and packed it back to the house. Oh, we was tickled. We really thought we'd done something good.
0: And so you raised it. How do you feed it?
6: You put a nipple, a lamb nipple, on a pot bottle on the end of a pot bottle, and they, they suck it. And so we raised him that summer, and then, he, of course, he lost his spots.
0: Did you give it a name?
6: Well, we called him Bambi.
0: (laughs) Very original. Okay.
6: Yeah, very original.
0: So is he a good pet?
6: Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was a lot of fun. We never had a a collar or anything on him. Never did break him to lead. We'd just put our hands on his, what we call their weathers, you know, where their neck goes right into their shoulders. Mm -hmm. And he'd walk by you. So we could walk him damn near any place we wanted to go. He'd go. So that year, the year we got him, that was the year that they done the play. And uh, they took a balloon and blowed it up about the size of a golf ball and put it on his nose, and he stood there with this red thing on his nose all during the play. Hmm. And if I remember right, the story just more or less centered around Santa Claus being sad because he couldn't get around.
0: Well, it sounds like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, where 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 his nose is what guides them. The light from his nose is what guides them to where they need to go. I,
6: I think so. I think that's what it was. Well, I can remember that the 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 hall was just you know crowded. Everybody knew that deer was going to be in there, and so everybody come to watch it. Oh, really? But he had, was
0: the, he was the star attraction of the show. He brought. Oh
6: the crowd. yeah! Oh yeah! They still talk about that play. I don't think they ever did top that play. How could you?
0: Was he on stage for most of the show?
6: Oh, he was on stage for the whole show. He probably stood there for a good two hours, so we spent the whole night standing there
0: <laughs> by
6: the <laughs> by the deer. <laughs> He'd look out in the crowd and look everybody over. You could see his ears moving back and forth, but we we'd pet him you know or scratch him on the neck.
0: What did he do when they applauded? I would think that for an animal that must have been so strange, the noise that would come from that.
6: Nothing. He stood there. He kind of, That's when he'd wiggle his tail and his ears would go back and forth.
0: Now, your dad, who had been against bringing in a wild animal the whole time, you remember what his reaction was to the play?
6: he I can remember him saying, you know, that it was really a, a nice play and he was glad that the deer had a part in it. But I remember when we uh, when we started to brand, we just begged Dad to let us castrate him, and he wouldn't do it. And, you know, as a kid, I, I just, oh, I was
0: upset. Wait, why did you want your dad to castrate him?
6: So he'd stay home. It's just like a, a dog. You take a dog, and if you've got a male dog, and you don't want that dog to go, I call it tramping, all over the countryside, you castrate him. We knew that if... Dad had let us castrate him, we would have had him forever. But uh, no, so he wouldn't let us castrate him.
0: Over the next year, Bambi grew up, developed antlers. Connie and her sisters like to touch the velvet on his antlers, she says. And Bambi started acting differently. Sometimes he'd just wander away for days. And when hunting season rolled around, the girls begged their dad to lock up Bambi somewhere on their property. But their dad said, no, that wasn't right. And they didn't ask twice, she says. Fortunately, because it was a small town, and especially after the Christmas play, everybody in the valley there knew about Bambi. The girls would take him into town sometimes in a car. and People would come up to them on the street and pet him. And they took special precautions during hunting season so everybody would recognize him.
6: We had a a big red scarf on him, and then we had a sheep bell, which is just a little smaller than a cow bell. And we'd painted this sheep bell red... And then, of course, when fall come, you know, late fall, why he took off and about 10 miles away, some guy, I guess they said, I never did ever talk to the guy, but they said he drove right up to him and shot him.
0: Oh, the deer didn't even run away. Oh, no. No, he wouldn't run.
6: Because he was uh, desensitized, you know, He, he wasn't afraid of people.
0: When the deer was killed, what did your dad say?
6: Just told us that that's just the way it was, and that's what we got for bringing him home. He told us then. He said that's what happens when you mess with Mother Nature. Hmm. So I guess you know if there's a moral to the story is you you don't you don't mess with something that's wild. You just leave it be.
0: Oh, really? Do you think your dad was right?
6: I think he was right at the time. I didn't, but looking back on it now. I'm still pissed at that guy that shot him.
0: Because you're sure that he knew him?
6: Oh, sure he did. He he had to have he had to have known. Well, in fact, I heard that he did that the that he knew. I hope he enjoyed eating him. The son of a bitch. You better edit that out.
0: No, I'd like to leave that in. Is that okay?
6: That's fine. Okay. No, that's fine.
0: I just don't understand how he could shoot him, knowing that he was your pet. Like he knew you guys, right? Uh, yeah,
6: yeah. And you know, I thinking back, I would imagine he'd probably what nineteen years old, smart ass teenagers. What he was, I can remember. We cried, mother cried, and dad was pissed. He he thought that was pretty pretty low for somebody to do that to an animal, especially when he knew. That it was ours.
0: Did you blame yourselves?
6: Yes, I did. Yes. The end result would have probably been the same, but he probably would have lived. He'd probably got another year or two, you know, before he'd got shot.
0: You mean if you left him with his mom?
6: Yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: It's funny, I thought we were going to have a sweet little sentimental Christmas story here, but now I feel so sad.
6: Well, yeah, it did end up sad. And you know, if I was you and you was doing the story, I think maybe I'd kind of take a little liberty with it and not burden kids with what happened to him.
0: Really? how, How would you want it to end?
6: Oh, like it was just a really nice play.
0: And not tell anything that happens afterwards.
6: Yeah, yeah.
0: But then, if you do that version of the story, then in the argument between you guys and your dad, you win because <laughs> everything works out happily ever after.
6: Well, I think at Christmas time, maybe we should win.
0: All right. Well, let's 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 do take two. So after the play, what happened to the deer?
6: Oh, we took him home. Mm-hmm. The play was always put on on Christmas Eve, so we went home because it would have been like 10 o'clock and, of course, Santa Claus was going to come and we was all excited.
0: And so in this version of the story, you guys live happily ever after, right?
6: Yeah, right, yeah. And then the, I vividly remember the next morning after uh, we asked if we could bring him in and uh, they mother and dad both said yes, so we put a lot of Christmas bows on him. And we let him stay in the house until he wandered into mother's plants. And then he had to go out.
0: Tiny Rex. She's celebrating Christmas at home this year. She goes on the ranch where she grew up, outside Woodruff, Utah. on the roof. Well, our last story today of somebody trying to summon a great holiday into existence comes from Ron Carlson, a story about a man, his wife Drew, his daughter Elise, a sled, a tree, and horse manure. Here's Ron Carlson.
8: The last thing I do every Christmas Eve is go out in the yard and throw the horse manure onto the roof. It is a ritual. After we return from making our attempt at the H Street sledding record, and we sit in the kitchen sipping eggnog and listening to Elise recount the sled ride. And Elise then finally goes to bed, happily, reluctantly. And we pin her stocking to the mantle, with care. And Drew brings out two other wrap boxes which anyone could see are for me. And I slap my forehead, having forgotten to get her anything at all for Christmas, except the prizes hidden behind the glider on the front porch. I go into the garage and put on the gloves, and then into the yard where I throw the horse manure onto the roof. Drew always uses this occasion to call my mother. They exchange all the Christmas news, but the main purpose of the calls the last few years has been for Drew to stand in the window, where she can see me out there, lobbing the great, fake reindeer turds, up into the snow on the roof and describe what I am doing to my mother the two women take amusement from this they say things like you married him and he's your son Drew had said when she first discovered me throwing the manure on the roof the Christmas that Elise was for you're the only man I've ever known who did that see, a compliment Now that Elise is eight, Drew has become cautious about this activity. You're fostering her fantasies. I don't care. I have thrown horse manure on our roof for four years now, and I plan to do it every Christmas Eve until my arm gives out. It satisfies me as a homeowner to do so, for the wonderful amber stain that is developing between the swamp cooler and the chimney and is visible all spring, summer, fall as you drive down the hill by our house. And for the way the two rose bushes by the gutterspout have raged into new and profound growth during the milder months. And as a father, it satisfies me as a ritual that keeps my family together. I put the brake on the sled in 1975 when Drew was pregnant with Elise so we could still make our annual attempt on the H Street record on Christmas Eve. It was the handle of a broken Louisville Slugger baseball bat, and still had the precise 34 stamped into the bottom. I sawed it off square and drilled and bolted it to the rear of the sled, so that when I pulled back on it, the stump would drag us to a stop. As it turned out, it was one of the two years when there was no snow. So we walked up to 11th Avenue and H Street as we'd promised, rain or shine, sat on the flexible flyer in the middle of the dry street on a starry Christmas Eve, and I held her in my lap. We sat on the sled like two basketball players contesting possession of her belly. We talked a little about what it would be like when she took her leave from the firm and I had her home all day with the baby. And we talked remotely about whether we wanted any more babies. And we talked about the record which was set on December 24th, 1969, the first Christmas of our marriage, when we lived in the neighborhood, on Fifth Avenue, in an old barn of a house, the total rent on which was seventy-two fifty, honest. And Drew had given me the sled that very night, and we had walked out about midnight and been surprised by the blizzard. No wonder we took the sled and walked around the corner up H Street, up, up, up to 11th avenue and without speaking or knowing what we were doing opening the door on the second ritual of our marriage the annual sled ride the first ritual was the word condition and the activities it engendered in our droopy old bed at the top we scanned the city blurred in snow sat on my brand new christmas sled and set off The sled rode high and effortlessly through the deep snow. And suddenly, as our hearts started and our eyes began to burn against the snowy air, we were going faster than we planned. We crossed 10th Avenue, nearly taking flight in the dip, and then descended in a dark rush, 9th, 8th, 7th, soaring across each avenue. My arms wrapped around Drew like a straitjacket to drag her off with me, if a car should cross in front of us on 6th, 5th Avenue, 4th. This all took seconds, do you see? Until a car did turn onto H Street, headed our way, and we veered the new sled sharply up over the curb, dousing our speed in the snowy yard, one house from the corner of 3rd Avenue. Drew took a real faceful of snow, Which she squirmed around and pressed into my neck, saying the words, Now that's a record. And it was the record, 11th to 3rd. And it stood partly because there had been two Christmas Eves with no snow, partly because of assorted spills brought on by too much speed, too much laughter, sometimes too much caution and by a light blue Mercedes that crossed 6th Avenue just in front of us in 1973. And though some years were flops, there was nothing about Christmas that Elise looked forward to as much as our one annual attempt at the H Street sledding record. I think Drew wants another baby. I'm not sure, but I think she wants another child. The signs are so subtle they barely seem to add up. But she says things like, Remember before Elise went to school? And, There sure are a lot of women in their mid-30s having babies. I should ask her. But for some reason I don't. We talk about everything. Everything. But I've avoided this topic. I've avoided talking to Drew about this topic because I want another child too badly to have her not want one. I want a little boy to come into the yard on Christmas morning and say, See? They're on the roof. The reindeers were there. I want another kid to throw horse manure for. I'll wait. It'll come up one of these days. I'll find a way to bring it up. Christmas is coming. On the first Friday night in December, every year, Elise and Drew and I go by our tree. This, too, is ritual. Like those families that bundle up and head for the wilderness so they can trudge through the deep, pristine snow, chop down their own little tree, and drag it step by step all the way home. We venture forth in the same spirit. Only we take the old pickup down to South State and find some joker who has thrown colored lights around the corner of the parking lot of a burned out Safeway and is proffering trees to the general public. There is something magical and sad about this little forest just sprung up across from city tacos and Drew and Elise and I wander the wooded paths waiting for some lopsided pinion to leap into our hearts. The winter Drew and I became serious when I was a senior and she was already in her first year at law school. I sold Christmas trees during vacation. I answered a card on a dorm bulletin board and went to work for a guy named Gear, who had cut 2,000 squat pinions from the hills east of Cedar City and was selling them from a dirt lot on Redwood Road. Drew's mother invited me to stay with them for the holidays, and it gave me the chance to help Drew make up her mind about me. I would sell trees until midnight with Gear, and then drive back to Drew's and watch every old movie in the world and wrestle with Drew until our faces were mashed blue. I wanted to complicate things wonderfully by having her sleep with me. She wanted to keep the couch cushions between us and think it over. It was a crazy Christmas. We'd steam up the windows in the entire living room, but she never gave in. We did develop the joke about condition, which we still use as a code word. And later, I won't say if it was spring or fall, when Drew said to me, I'd like to see you about this condition. I knew everything was going to be all right and that we'd spend every Christmas together for the rest of our lives. How do you like it? Elise says to me. She has selected a short, broad bush, which seems to have grown in two directions at once and then given up. She sees the look on my face and says... If you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. Besides, I've already decided this is the tree for us. It's a beautiful tree, Drew says. Quasimodo, I whisper to Drew. This tree's name is Quasimodo. No whispering, Elise says from behind us. What's he saying now, Mom? He said he likes the tree too. Elise is not convinced, and after a pause, she says, Dad... It's Christmas. Behave yourself. When we go to pay for the tree, the master of ceremonies is busy negotiating a deal with two kids, a punk couple. The tree man stands with his hands in his change apron and says, I got to get 35 bucks for that tree. The boy, a skinny kid in a leather jacket, shrugs and says he's only got $28. His girlfriend, a large person with a bowl haircut and a monstrous black overcoat, festooned with buttons, is wailing. Please, oh no, Jimmy, Jimmy, I love that tree, I want that tree. Jimmy retreats to his car, an old Plymouth big as a boat. He returns instantly and opens a handful of coins. I'll give you 31 bucks, 55 cents, and my watch. To our surprise... The wily tree man takes the watch to examine it. When I see that, I give Elise $4 and tell her to give it to Kid Jimmy and say Merry Christmas. His girlfriend is still wailing, but now it's a minor refrain of, Oh, Jimmy, that tree, oh, Jimmy, etc. I haven't seen a public display of emotion and longing of this magnitude in Salt Lake City ever. I watch Elise give the boy the money, but instead of saying Merry Christmas, I hear her say instead, here, Jimmy, Santa says keep your watch. On the way home in the truck, I say to Elise, Santa says keep your watch? Yes, he does, she smiles. How old are you, anyway? Eight. It's an old joke, and Drew finishes it for me. When he was your age, he was seven. Seven. We will go home, and while the two women begin decorating the tree with the artifacts of our many Christmases together, I will thread popcorn onto a long string. It is a ritual I prefer for its uniqueness. The fact that once a year I get to sit and watch the two girls I am related to move about a tree inside our home while I sit nearby and sow food. On the morning of the 24th of December, Elise comes into our bedroom, already dressed for sledding. Good news, she says. We've got a shot at the record. Drew rises from the pillow and peeks out the blind. It's snowing, she says. Christmas Eve, we drive back along the snowy avenues and park on Fifth, as always. I know, Elise says, hopping out of the car, you two used to live right over there before you had me, and it was a swell place and only cost seventy two fifty a month, honest. Elise is off now, towing the sled away, around the corner, up toward eleventh Avenue. It is still snowing, petal flakes, teeming by the street lamps, trying to carry the world away. I take Drew's hand and we walk up the middle of H Street behind our daughter. There is no traffic, but the few cars have packed the tender snow perfectly. It could be a record. On Ninth Avenue, Drew stops me in the intersection. The world still is snow and kisses me. I love you, she says. What a planet, I whisper, to allow such a thing. By the time we climb to 11th Avenue, Elise is seated on the sled, ready to go. What are you guys waiting for? Christmas? she says, and then laughs at her own joke. Then she becomes all business. Listen, Dad, I figure if you stay just a little to the left of the tire tracks, we could go all the way. And no wobbling. She's referring to last year's record attempt, which was extinguished in the 8th Avenue block when we laughed ourselves into a fatal wobble and ended in a slush heap. We arrange ourselves on the sled, as we have each Christmas Eve for eight years. As I reach my long legs around these two women, I sense their excitement. It's going to be a record, Elise whispers into the whispering snow. Do you think so? Drew asks. She also feels this could be the night. Oh yeah, Elise says. The conditions are perfect. What do you think, Drew turns to me. Well, the conditions are perfect. So I press. There's still room on this sled, I say, pointing to the F in Flexible Flyer that is visible between Elise's legs. There's still room for another person. Who? Elise asks. Your little brother, Drew says, squeezing my knees. And that's about all that was said, sitting up there on 11th Avenue on Christmas Eve, on a sled which is as old as my marriage, with a brake that is as old as my daughter. Later tonight I will stand in my yard and throw this year's reindeer droppings on my very own home. I love Christmas. Now the snow spirals softly around us. I put my arms around my family and lift my feet onto the steering bar. We begin to slip down H Street. We are trying for the record. The conditions, as you know by now, are perfect.
0: Ron Carlson, reading his short story, it's fiction called The H Street Sledding Record. It's from a short story collection, A Kind of Flying, selected stories by Ron Carlson. It originally appeared in McCall's.
8: Listen, everybody. Merry
0: Christmas, everybody! Merry Christmas, baby! Our program was produced today by Brian Reed and Jonathan Nanhivar, with Alex Bloomberg, Ben Calhoun, Sarah Kandig, Miki Meek, Lisa Pollock, Robin Semian, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, production help from Tariq Fuda. Seth Wynn is our operations director. Emily Condon's our production manager. Elise Bergerson's our administrative assistant. Music help from Damian Gray and Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to John Ronson, Sarah Henderson, Michelle Harris, Richard Stewart, and Lou Teddy at String and Can. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WB Easy Management Oversight for our program by our our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, one of the most experienced programmers in public broadcasting. He knows the ingredients you need for any successful radio show, and of course, they are
5: vegetables, a head of broccoli, you know, an onion,
0: and one of the bones from the you know the original Rudolph. I'm Ira Glass. Back next week with more stories of this American life. <laughs> Let me put it yeah. See, the I said, baby. You me in yeah. You brought me the Feel like
7: in paradise. BRI, Public Radio International.